as they were coming up, how many of you were out there thinking, are they ever going to stop? You know, they just, they just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. Uh, what a blessing it is to have so many children in our church. And it is a thrill of mine. It's a thrill of the elders, the deacons, the staff of the church to have our children in our worship service. Uh, it's consistent with Scripture to have children in the worship service. Whole families throughout the Scripture worship God together. And we do that here. Uh, and we want what the Scripture talks about. At some point, your children will come to you and say, Why do you sing? Why do you pray? Why do you do the Lord's Supper? They'll ask questions. And you get to share your faith with them because they see it uh, expressed here. And then when they get to a place in their life, as this song they just sang illustrates, when they get to a place where they say, Dad, Mom, I believe. That's the happiest day of your life. When your kids come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And what a joy it is that we see it year after year after year because of faithful parents going through the hard stuff of getting your kids dressed and bringing them to church. But it's an eternal ministry. And I just, I'm proud of you for doing it. And uh, so thankful to be a part of a church that celebrates it. Open your Bible with me, whether you mash it on or turn it on or flip a page, doesn't matter. But look at Luke chapter 24, last chapter of Luke. Luke, And we're going to look at the last three verses. <clears throat> Luke 24. Actually, four verses, 50 through 53. Hear God's word. And he led them out as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. We do that at the end of each service where there's a blessing. This is Jesus leading out his disciples, lifting up his hands. He blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What I want us to see this morning is the connection between the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, him going into heaven and why those are tied together. We uh, just recited it in the Apostles' Creed. We believe in God the Father. We believe in God the Son. And God the Son was the one who came and died, buried, rose again from the dead. And then he ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of, the, of God the Father. I want us to see the connection of those two things this morning um, and, and why that matters, how it drives home the value and the beauty of the resurrection as well. Interesting, as I was reading that passage, uh, Luke 24, um, you know, how many of you thought when, when Jesus got to that moment, he, he did the Superman move, you know, he puts one hand in the air, and whew, take, how did he leave? Read it again, look at it. They carried him. We don't even know who carried him. He, did, he didn't fly away. He was carried in some manner to sit on a seat that God the Father had prepared for him. We don't know if someone, if God and Father himself cradled him. 
We don't know if angels lifted him. We don't know if there was a chariot, a throne. But he was carried. It was very intentional that Christ ascend into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So intentional, and it's worth some thought. As I thought about it, I said, you know, I don't know that I've ever heard a sermon on this. I know it's part of the creed, the Apostles' Creed, but never really thought about the ascension of Christ and why he did it and why this way. So I want us to think this morning about the ascension of Christ, his relocation to heaven, his rule there. He's ascending to rule. He's ascending to continue to redeem, and he's ascending to return. It's not over. I want us to think about how this ascension made possible by the resurrection and then what's going to happen from there. Um, where's Jesus? You know, he's, we need to think those thoughts through. If you were to ask me, you know, where are your grandparents? I, I, I don't, you, you ask him about where they physically are? I was there at the funeral. We put them in the ground. We covered the vault and the coffin up with dirt. They're not here. They're gone. But see, we don't have any thoughts like that about Jesus. He didn't stay in the grave. He wasn't buried anyway. He was laid in a tomb. So he wasn't under anything, but he still didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from that grave and in just a few days ascended into heaven. Um, we don't see him. Uh, we don't walk and talk with him in a physical way anymore. He's, he serves and leads the church remotely. He's in another place. He's at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. When I was in seminary the second or third time, however many times I went, uh, in some of my doctoral studies, I was studying church growth. And one of the things that I, I was privileged to do is to go to some of the leading preachers in the land in that day. So one that I went to was James Kennedy's church, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He has the number one evangelism program in the world. It's the only evangelism program that has gone to every single nation in the world. Very significant to be able to talk with him about evangelism. And to see how the program he wrote for that, how it went to every country, and the church grew. I also got to go to, to Dallas, actually north of Dallas, Plano, Texas, where Gene Getz was, one of the prolific writers back when I was in school uh, on church growth and structure of churches and how churches should be structured and worship should be structured in a church and to sit down and talk with him about the structure and uh, he had a book called Shaping the, the, the Church and How It Should Be Shaped. Then from there, I went to uh, Fullerton, California, and met with Ch Chuck Swindoll, one of the most growingest, prolific writer on radio that grew the church, and to talk to him and see how this was happening. From there, to kind of get out of my shell into the Foursquare Gospel Church and meet with Jack Hayforth. 
and see how he was having so many services and so many people were getting saved, and yet he was a seminary professor. He wasn't this dynamo. How was he having a teaching ministry to thousands? And because the focus on the family was so big at that point, from there I went to Jim Dobson's church. I said, what kind of church pastors are Jim Dobson? And what are they doing? And this didn't sit down with him, but sat down with his pastor. What, what's it like to pastor James Dobson and focus on the family ministry and all that goes with that? Well, I share that. I think maybe it's the first time I share it. Because you think about it and say, hey, that's pretty significant to make those trips, to sit down and talk with those people. I want to still know more and more and more about church and church growth and shaping the church. I can't go sit down with Jesus. He's not the pastor of some mega church where I go and meet with him and sit down with him and say, tell me how to do it. Because he's been relocated. He's not here. And we have to embrace that. It drives us back, obviously, to the scriptures, to his word, to what he said. But it should drive us also to where he is. He's sitting on a throne in heaven. He's not like us. He's beyond us. He's over us. And all of that has significant. We, we, we should be like the angels at the empty tomb, rolling the stone away and saying to the disciples, the church coming, he's not here. He's risen. He is not here. Or, or like these men that were in white robes, Acts chapter 1 tells us this, at, when Jesus ascended and they look at the people and say, why do you keep looking up? He's relocated. He's gone. He'll come back someday, but you've got work to do. You've got stuff to do. You can't be with him now. Why, why do you think you can? He's relocated. He's gone to sit at the right hand of God. That's where he's ascended to, and that's where he'll be until he comes again. Great message. It's not over. He's coming again. He's relocated. He's not someplace we can drive to, fly to, check out. He's way beyond that. And yet, he's coming again. He will return. Now he rules over his church remotely. So let's move to that, his rule. Think about what Christ is doing, his rule. Uh, Christ has to be somewhere. It's crucial that he's somewhere as he rules. He was in heaven. He came to earth. He goes back to heaven to rule over. I'm thankful he's not in some mega church in Dallas, quite frankly. That's not where he is. Because if that's where he is, he would be ruling some national church. But Christ is in the strategic location to rule over a global, international body of believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. His ascension into heaven requires it. A location that can see the whole church at the same time and oversee as head of the church as Christ over his church. What I want to say is his, his ascension is not about him leaving. 
His ascension is about him arriving. He didn't just leave us. He didn't just leave earth. Strategically, he arrived in heaven at a strategic place, the right hand of God given to him to rule. He didn't have an arrival party, a welcome home party. Rather, if there was a party, it was an enthronement party. He was enthroned as King of Kings, as Lord of heaven and earth. Think about his rule. Look at, let me share a couple passages. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Love this in his rule. Revelation 1. Verse 18. And the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death. And Hades. Now stop and think about that a minute. Christ, why did he live? Why did he come? Why did he die? It was not just to forgive us of our sins. Christ says in other places, he says, I came to destroy the evil one. I came to do battle with Satan himself. And to wipe out his power. He who had been given the keys of Hades and death. I don't know about you, but those are two doors I want unlocked. I don't want the door of death to be locked. I don't want the door of the grave to be locked. Christ came to snatch the keys away from Satan, to snatch that power out of his hands so that when we get to his throne... And we say, can I see the nail-scarred hands? Sure, but they will be rattling keys. The keys of Hades and death are in his hands. He rules over. He has the power to unlock the door to the grave and to death so that you and I can live forevermore. He died and lived so that we might live. To do that, he takes Satan's power. He takes his keys. And when he gets there in heaven, he holds them. Another verse in Revelation I want you to see. Look over at chapter 11, verses 15 through 17. Revelation 11. Fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven. I have to say this a lot. Some people want quiet churches. When you get to heaven, it's going to be loud. Just want you to know. Oh. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
And he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God, they fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord, Lord God Almighty, who, was, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. See, there it is. He's ruling. He's begun the rule. He didn't just leave. He's got work to do. He is on the throne ruling. He's taken his power, his great power, and he has begun to rule. He rules over, we've already seen, over the grave. He rules over death. He rules over sin. He rules over light and darkness. He is ruler in heaven and earth. The enthronement party, I think, is, was perhaps easier seen. I'll give you another prophecy. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. <coughs> Excuse me. There's no way to cut that mic off, cough, cut it back on and all that. Never figured that out. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, they came there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. So that's Christ coming up to God the Father. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Think rule. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominions an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be Destroyed. I think the time frame on this is right after the death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, somewhere before his ascension, he goes up to the Ancient of Days, and he's given a kingdom. He's given dominion. He's given rule and power. And he goes to his disciples just before he tells them the Great Commission. He says, I want you to know I have been given all rule in heaven and earth, all power. Therefore, go and make disciples. He had just been given this dominion, he had gone, and God the Father said, this is what it was for. This is what it was about, so that you could rule, um, and his rule is from his throne. Now, think about it this way, because we get these sentimental ideas that, that I want Christ sitting right beside me, and I want him just to be my brother and friend, and Yes, he has all of that empathy for us as a brother, as a friend, as a father, as a mother. But he's ruler. He's king of kings. And he's lord of lords. It reminded me of uh, making a flight back and forth to school at one point, And I happened to be sitting economy section beside a commercial airline pilot. And I was talking to him about planes. I mean, I, I just ain't pilots are fascinating because they, they go into the wild blue yonder. They go places, you know, I can only imagine. And, and just the glory of it. So sitting there, you know, at some point during the flight, we had some turbulence. You know, and I hate turbulence. You know, when you feel like everything just came out from under you. And, and I kind of punched him. I said, did the pilot do pretty good? You know, are, are, are we safe? Are we, you know, what's going on? You can ask those things to pilots. At some point, as the turbulence got worse, I'm thinking, I don't want him sitting beside me. 
if he's got any knowledge at all, I want him in the cockpit. I want him to sit in the captain's chair. I want him to manage this flight. He's so much more effective there than he would be sitting beside me. And think Christ that way. Think of Christ that way. It's so neat if he can sit beside us, and he could. But he's on his throne to rule. And whatever it is you need, whatever power, whatever sin needs to be forgiven, whatever destruction needs to occur so that you can be set free, Christ can do it from where he is. He's on his throne. And he rules. He ascended for that purpose. His reign has begun. And he's forever victorious over all things. I'm going to share in my discipleship class in just a little bit. You think about world religions. There is no other religion whose savior, redeemer, whose prophet, whose teacher has died, been buried, rose again from the grave, and he lives to rule. Muhammad is dead, still in the grave. Buddha, dead, still in the grave. Confucius, dead, still in the grave. Karl Marx, dead, still in the grave. Only Jesus lives. We are the only people who have a living Savior who rules heaven and earth. And he's on his throne. What a glorious thing. He's, he's located there, relocated. He's ruling and he's redeeming. I want us to see the redemption that he provides from there. Look at Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. Hebrews 10. When Christ had offered... For all time, a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Notice how this passage skips the death, burial, and resurrection altogether. As soon as he offered this sacrifice for sins, he sits down. Takes us right to the ascension. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. And he adds, and I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Christ came to put aside our sin. He came to redeem. And he says, as soon as... He made the sacrifice, the once and for all sufficient sacrifice of dying in our place on the cross. It's like, let me go to the Father. Let me hear, well done. Let me forgive. Let me go and tell my people, I'm going to remember their sins. No more. And Christ is still giving out that message over and over and over. Um, you know, it was mentioned earlier, after 33 years of perfect, righteous living on earth for you and me, I would have think, you know, arrest would have been in order. 
deserved rest for all that he had done. doesn't say that he, that he gets to heaven. They welcome him to the hot tub and give him a drink, you know. He's not sitting back saying, oh, man, that was tough. I, I've done it now. He wants to rest. No, he is working. He is working. And I want you to see who he's working for. Look at Hebrews 9, 24 uh, through 28. I love this. Hebrews 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies. So he didn't just go to church. Things we make that are copies are something far better. But into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God and then circle these next three words. On our behalf. Wow. Christ ascends goes to the throne room with you and me in mind. He has a mission. I'm there on their behalf. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly. He said, I don't have to go through that again. His sacrifice, again, was once and for all sufficient. Verse 26. For then he would have to (coughs) suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is still a Savior. He's still saving. And he eagerly wants to do so, to forgive us of our sins. He is fighting on our behalf. Um, Just one more while we're in Hebrews. Hebrews 7.25. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to pray for you to pray for me, to make intercession, to plead for your redemption, to plead for my redemption. Let's suppose you were, I was in court for some reason. The judge says, hey, uh, where's your lawyer? I thought I'd represent myself, you know, spent all that time in school, think I could do this. The judge said, no, that's not how it's going to go. He says, I know the people who are against you. And I know they're lawyers. They're worse than Satan himself. They will eat your lunch. We're not, I'm not going to have a courtroom like that. I'm going to dismiss you right now. You go find you a representative. And do not come back into my courtroom without a representative. You cannot represent yourself against these guys. And that would be a, a tremendously thoughtful judge. If he knew how things were going to go. How much better would it be then if I had a representative? And we need to see Jesus is our representative. He is standing in the courtroom. He is standing before the judge. And he's there on our behalf. Pleading for our redemption. For our forgiveness of whatever the sin. Being able to say, I don't have to do this again, judge. I already paid for that sin. I've already purchased them. I bought them with my own blood. You must set them free. 
That's the redeeming work of Christ that goes on. He says, I am doing this continually. He says, I live for this. This is what, not that he has to get up in the morning, but this is what gets me up in the morning. Is to represent my people. To plead their case. To wash away their sins. What a glorious Redeemer and Savior we have who has ascended for this ongoing, ceaseless intercession for us. You know, uh, I've often thrown out the question, if you were to die today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? It's a good question. It's worth thinking about. But let's take it one step further now that we are, we're into the doctrine of the ascension and what Christ is doing. You see, if I, if I were to stand before God the judge and God were to ask me that fictitious question, why should I let you into heaven? Well, I've studied and thought about it enough that, you know, I, I, I'd be fearful, I'd be scared, but I'd be mumbling something about the blood of Jesus. You know, Jesus washed me with his blood. I'm not here by me. It's, it's, it's got to be grace. You know, I'm mumbling through something. Jesus would literally stand up to hold on here. You don't represent yourself. You don't speak. I'm your lawyer. I'm your representative. You don't have to answer that question. I answer it for you. Praise God. We don't have to fear that we're not going to make it. When Jesus is there, can't wait to get up and plead our case based on his merits alone. Hallelujah. What a Savior. He ever lives on our behalf to make intercession. Fourth. Christ's resurrection return. He's not idle. He's not sitting in the hot tub. He's not just having a drink. He's in the throne room. He's got business to attend to. And the business is building his church. And because he's about the active business of building his church... He doesn't rest. This is a huge reason. Why did he come? For a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. He came for a people, a church. He came to call people out. That's the name of the church. The called out ones. To call people out of this world to himself to be his church. Peter had it when he preached his first sermon. Look at Acts chapter 2. 29 through 36. Acts chapter 2, 29 through 36. Brothers, Peter's sermon says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died, was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Like King David, he's pretty big, but he died, he's still in the grave. We get that. We see people die. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And he, is not, and he was not abandoned 
to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that, we all are witnesses. I mean, this is an audience of 3,000 plus people. It's only been 50 days. He said, we all know it. Just ask, if, you, if you don't know Jesus Christ, died, buried, rose, just ask somebody beside you. Everybody here is a witness. We all know this to be a fact. David, we can go find his tomb. Christ, can't, you can go to the tomb, but it's empty. He's not here. He's been resurrected. David knew that was going to happen. God told him so. He put it in the Bible. There it is. This Jesus, verse 32, God raised up. Of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this. So he pours out the Holy Spirit that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Man, what a powerful message. The majority of his audience are Jews. That's why he said, verse 36, let all the house of Israel, who's that? Jews. All of you Jews need to know this as he's talking. Because you thought God was going to send a Messiah that was going to be a national ruler. So you thought it could not possibly be Jesus. Since it couldn't be Jesus, you crucified him. Boy, did you mess up. He says, and I want you all to know it. Because your only hope is that when Jesus returns, he comes for the nation of the Jews as well as the nation of the the Gentiles. It is every nation, tribe, tongue, and people group. You cannot reject Christ. He is the only way of salvation. You would be a fool to go down that road. So Peter's trying to show them what's happened, what's going to happen. Let me give you a few return passages. Look at Philippians 3.20. Philippians 3.20. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Whether we die today or 20 years, it doesn't matter. We're going to be waiting for... a Christ to return. We're waiting for a consummation. The rule has been commenced. There's a difference between a commencement and a consummation. Christ will return to be the glorious wedding partner to his church, to be the groom that gets his bride. He says, we await that. That's going to be a glorious day. I'll give you another passage. Look a couple books over. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. It says, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, 
and how you, it's interesting, here's, he's presenting the gospel and says, this is what you did when you got saved. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the repentance God's talking about, so if, if you're going the wrong direction, he says you turned the right direction. So you not only turned from something, serving vain idols, you turned to something, serving the living and true God, from whom you wait for the consummation. You wait for the day Christ returns to earth to gather one last time his church. So all of his church waits to be delivered from wrath, to be connected to Christ. Um, I'll just forsake a time. You know perhaps the passage in Ephesians 5 that says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. And he says Christ loved the church and he washed the church with his word. And Christ is always cleansing his church and sanctifying his church because he's, he's looking forward to a day where he will present his church without spot or blemish. He will present his church as holy, perfect, without any sin. Imagine that presentation. Imagine that day. That's what we wait for. The wrath of God's not going to be poured out on us who are in Christ. Because we still have some vestige of sin. No. Instead, Christ is going to say, I've done it. I've made them holy. I've set them apart totally for me. And I've cleansed them from all sin. And he goes through the role of his church. Pick on you, you're on front row. Eric. Perfect. Meredith. Perfect. Jeffrey, perfect. Samuel, perfect. And put your name in there if you're a believer. That you will stand before him. Not having to go through a list of your sins. But hearing, I want to present today. You've been to weddings where they present the party. I want to present to you this believer who is without spot or blemish. They're perfect. And they're mine. That's what we await. Is total cleansing from all past, present, future sin. Becoming like Christ. Perfect. Without sin. In every way. Let's pray together.